Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Picture this, either online or in person. The Atlanta Photography Group presents a new exhibition in the main atrium of Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. The show is titled... APG to ATL, Airport 2020. We'll hear about this annual highlight of the Atlanta Celebrates Photography Festival later in the hour. First, another exhibition, this on a seminal event in our city's history. On September 18, 1990, Atlanta was chosen to host the 1996 Olympic Games, an event that many view as a turning point in our city's trajectory. The Atlanta History Center's new exhibition, Atlanta 96, Shaping an Olympic and Paralympic City, opens tomorrow. And to mark the occasion, curator Sarah Dilla joined me via Zoom to discuss what's featured in this show. Sarah Dilla, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. The Atlanta History Center has long included the 1996 Olympics in exhibitions such as the Centennial Olympic Games Museum, which was open for 10 years. What distinguishes this exhibition from previous shows? The Atlantis History Center has had a long history of being involved with the city's Olympic history. It actually stems from the fact that the organizing committee of the Olympic Games selected Atlanta History Center as the repository for all of their collections, all the records and objects left over and videos and photos from the process of bidding for and preparing for and hosting the games. The institution has this vast treasure trove of all kinds of things that tell the story of of a city's time in the spotlight. And and as you mentioned, that was all used in, in the past exhibition And now here we are 30 years after the city won the bid, and we're looking back a little bit differently than before. This exhibition opens on the 30th anniversary of the city's selection to be host of the 1996 Centennial Olympic Games. Um, So that's an anniversary we kind of wanted to mark. And it's also a jumping off point for us to do something something different with this exhibition. And how it's different is really that that this exhibition 
is a departure from your traditional sports history in a museum setting. You might think of a sports hall of fame. And, and this is not a sports hall of fame. We want to kind of look at the Olympics as this inherently urban project and how the Olympics really change a city and, and garner attention and create all kinds of ripple effects of actions and reactions of people leveraging that spotlight and the resources and the massive change that that comes from uh, the Olympics coming to a city. We hope that this exhibition will encourage people to really think about why Atlanta is the way it is, as well as kind of pulling back the curtain of how a city puts on such a massive event and the changes that it creates. When that announcement that Atlanta won the bid for the games was made, I had lived here over a decade, and yet I did not realize how much impact that made on native Atlantans, on people who had lived here much longer than I. The the pride was palpable. I remembered exactly where I was when the announcement came. I was in the lobby of our radio and television station, and some of my colleagues were watching our television. And when the announcement came on, they burst into tears. You know, the the pride was amazing. And of course, when Maynard Jackson accepted in French, if you will, it was all the more glorious. So it was very special to be part of that moment, but also a window into how much meaning it had for people who were born or grew up here. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned uh, your personal story, remembering it. And I think that rings true for for so many people that we've talked to in the course of of planning this exhibition. And also, you know, of course, the community that's still in Atlanta who was involved in different aspects of the games. It is absolutely a golden moment and a very nostalgic moment in, in people's memories and in the city's history. The exhibition includes touchless interactive experiences. How will museum goers interact without touch? (laughs) That is part of our new normal. Um, I, I think, you know, the museum industry, just like everyone else right now has been deeply affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. And this exhibition was actually well underway of development when with the onset of, of the pandemic. And so we had to really step back and reassess and really think about what museums were going to be like once we were able to reopen again. With the opening of this exhibition, we had planned a variety of interactives throughout the space that were you know, your traditional touch screens to play videos from the time, footage from the games, oral histories, and that kind of thing, as well as tangible activities to kind of help learning intergenerationally. And so we are experimenting with a new technology that allows you to use touch screen selections without your fingers. So you hold up your hand in front and your your gestures are captured and they uh, become the kind of the mouse click or the, the finger click. Oh, that's fascinating. It feels kind of Star Trek. <laughs> yes, you know, the 1990s were a big moment for uh, technological innovation. So I hope we're kind of, we're, we're following the trends there. The 1996 games were actually the very first to have a, an official website. So we're, we're continuing with the technological innovations, hopefully. Now there are four themes in the exhibition. Envisioning, campaigning, realizing, and reflecting. I'd appreciate if you could take us through 
each one, Sarah, envisioning highlights 11 leaders who were involved in making the games a reality for Atlanta. How far back did that effort go? Talking about these four themes and how the exhibition is structured, this is is really the, the groundwork for making this exhibition kind of encourage people to think about why Atlanta is the way it is and how the games fit into its long trajectory of of kind of pushing for increasing status, national status, international status. So that's kind of how we got to these themes. We want to kind of break this story down into the steps of a project and kind of open up the actual process of this massive civic undertaking of the Olympic Games. And so we start with this idea of of having an idea, of having a vision, and look both at the roots of the 1996 Olympic and Paralympic Games and and the, the pitch, the starting point of the pitch to have those, as well as all the other kinds of actions and activities that were bubbling up around the city in the late 20th century. And and who who were the big actors and who were the people kind of pushing for change or pushing for big new efforts in Atlanta? It highlights a variety of, of Atlanta residents who are doing that work across the board, whether that's developers trying to assess what the downtown will be like in the era of a burgeoning convention industry, or whether that's folks who want to start a coalition of bringing the games to Atlanta, or whether that's a disability rights movement that ends up funneling into efforts to make the Paralympic Games have more parity in Atlanta. So there are all these kind of initial ideas that we wanted to ground people with from the beginning of this story to show a bit more behind this story that's often just thought of as a sports history. The leaders whom you highlight are not just politicians, but also artists, athletes, and disability rights advocates. What determined the 11 you chose? 11 is is certainly not a comprehensive list by any means. And, And when we work on an exhibit like this, it's at its base an editing process, right? And just like a book or an article, we have only a small amount of space to tell a really impressive, large story of all the people and what they were doing in Atlanta in the 20th century, late 20th century. We selected 11 to kind of capture the different facets that we wanted to make sure came across throughout this story. And they are certainly not all, all politicians. You know, the, the push to have the Olympics was, was something that was very much led by Atlanta's city leadership and business community. As the story goes in Atlanta, you know, everyone who, who knows that story, who, who remembers being part of the where they were when the bid announcement knows the role of Billy Payne and Andy Young in, in generating the pitch and the excitement around the possibility of getting the games. But there's so much other activity happening at that time that all kind of converges in the 1990s. Uh, and we wanted to use these individuals to kind of put faces to those, those initiatives. Campaigning is the next theme in the exhibition, which focuses on garnering support for the games. Do you present both the excitement for the games coming to Atlanta as well as the stories of those who opposed it? In in this section, we really wanted to capture both the story of the bid which is which is a large story in itself and also the sense of what was happening in the run up to the games the impending deadline the ripple effects almost of of the announcement that the games are in fact coming to Atlanta and and how do different people want to get in on that uh, how do they want to 
to leverage some of that spotlight and some of the resources? Or how are they acting at odds with it? It's all kinds of, of motion at that time. We start off with the story of the pitch, the story of the bid, and how how the presentation of, of bringing the games to Atlanta was, was created and how they gained support for that presentation. And Atlanta had this very elaborate five volume bid book, it's called in, in the Olympic world, which is, which is basically your application to be a host city. And we have a, uh, a mock-up of this book because this is in the age of creating a book before, um, before your desktop publishing. So it's all kind of clippings and taped and colored pencils of, of what the book layout should appear as. And once the games are secured, we also wanted to look at all of the different initiatives to, uh, to grab hold of that excitement and to help shape what Atlanta was going to be to the world once the games were here. And that took the form of people pushing for social and legislative change, whether it's the Olympics out of Cobb movement, which was run by uh, the LGBTQ community in an effort to change discriminatory legislation in Cobb County and not have the Olympics kind of have a presence in Cobb County until that was changed. And it takes the shape of the individuals who are pushing to uh, host the Paralympic Games, which is, that was not secured until a bit after the Olympic bid was won. Today, in today's games, they're both secured together, but that's kind of a change that was made. Continuing through the exhibition, the theme Realizing presents visitors with the unfolding of the games. Would you tell us some of your favorite moments from this part of the exhibition? In this section of the games, it is the physical preparation. There's so much activity going along in the preparation of the games, but uh, one of the most recognizable parts of games preparation is venue construction and jobs uh, and the bustle around that. And, and of course, the work of the athletes and the role of the athletes. So in this section, we really wanted to locate the games preparation and bring it into the summer of 1996. Uh, we go through stories of uh, the public art that was created, the venues that were constructed and sites that were constructed. We talk about the park and the stadium in Summer Hill. Uh, which was Centennial Olympic Stadium, and tell the story of, of those major sites of urban transformation and urban renewal efforts around Olympic-related construction. And so those are interesting stories because they, they harken back to our effort to put this story in the longer context of the city and the longer push for change. Any memorabilia in the show not previously on display at the History Center. We have things from your most memorable athletes from the 1996 games, whether that's the fastest man alive, Michael Johnson, um, or the video of, of Carrie Strug. Uh, we have these moments that capture that, the kind of golden memories of the games, but also the way that athletes um, kind of bring social and political issues to, to a broader audience through, through their performances. Do you include the Cultural Olympiad in this show? Yes, that is uh, one of our, our facets is cultural change in the city. And, and from the beginning, we kind of start the thread of how arts leaders and artists have shaped this city and, and the different forms that that took in the 80s and 90s. The Olympics also brought a large investment to the arts and culture world of Atlanta, whether that's through public art or kind of seed money for projects at our city's cultural institutions, both small artist organizations and the large museums that we recognize today. There were a variety of exhibitions and performances through the Olympic Arts Festival, and there was also the very first cultural Paralympiad 
that happened at that time. We interweave the story of arts and culture investment um, because that's a major part of, of shaping the city, right? As the, the Olympics come, city leaders and Olympic organizers want the city to project well for, for a global audience. Uh, and that includes a rich cultural scene. One of my favorite objects that we have in the exhibit is actually a model of the 1996 cauldron. It's a very delicate artist model made out of balsa wood and toothpicks, but it was, it was one of the commissions that the cultural organizers on the Olympic teams that they organized. So it's a commissioned work and that's a very rare occurrence for a, for a cauldron. Olympic cauldrons are typically designed by architects or, or engineers to make sure they're um, functional and that they'll hold that flame for the duration. Oh, and of course, the unforgettable moment with Muhammad Ali. That is true. That is another one of those, the bullet points of what happened in the 1996 games. Muhammad Ali uh, is unforgettable. And it's a, it's an example of, of how the role of an athlete carries so much more meaning than just the sport they play. Muhammad Ali's connection to Atlanta and the story of his comeback and how this lighting of the cauldron really, really brought his story full circle is, is an interesting component. Indeed. Some people have described Atlanta as a regional capital before the games and an international city after the Olympics. I know that was certainly in the hopes of those who organized the games. Do you think this singular event gets too much credit for transforming the city into what it is today? Well, Lois, I might be a little biased. Uh <laughs> <laughs> But I think the I think the 1996 games were huge. They were certainly huge for the story of recent Atlanta. But I think in part of what this this exhibit looks to, and what I hope people will be encouraged to think about, is is that this event fits into the recurring types of things that that Atlanta's leaders were doing over over a long century or more of the city's history. That trajectory shows that constant progression of making Atlanta have increasing status nationally and then increasing status internationally. It led up to the games in, in a sensible progression. I hope that visitors will think about that aspect of, of the Olympics, which is really what the foundation of this exhibit seeks to do is, is put the games in this setting where people can understand them as the massive civic undertaking that they were, and yet another step in Atlanta's quest for that increasing image, that increasing status, that name recognition. Sarah Dilla, this has been very interesting, and I thank you very much. I thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lois. This was wonderful to finally get to be on the other side of the radio with you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Curator Sarah Dilla, the exhibition at Lata 96, Shaping an Olympic and Paralympic City, opens tomorrow at the Atlanta History Center. You can find out more on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we're off to the airport for a new exhibition of photography. You are tuned to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Viewing public art is a welcome aspect of visiting Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. Now, with air travel drastically reduced during the pandemic, Hartsfield-Jackson still sees a large number of folks passing through each day, and those travelers will be greeted with a new exhibition of photos. Atlanta Photography Group presents APG to ATL, Airport 2020. The show was juried by Amy Miller, director of Atlanta Celebrates Photography. She joins us now with Judith Pishnery, the executive director of the Atlanta Photography Group. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thank you so much for having us. Our pleasure. And Atlanta is so rich with photography exhibitions, with a number of photographers, professional as well as hobbyists. Can you tell us the distinction between your organizations. This is Amy. Atlanta Celebrates Photography actually started 22 years ago as an offshoot, I guess you could say, of the Atlanta Photography Group, which is an older, more established organization at the time. So it basically started as a group of people who wanted to do some more public programming. It was a membership organization to serve its members. And so there was sort of a natural kind of division on the the scope of services between the two organizations. And we've grown up to be great friends. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> we have. And, and this is Judith. And the Atlanta Photography Group is, as Amy mentioned, is a membership-based fine art photographic organization here in Atlanta that began in 1987. The goal of the Atlanta Photography Group is to provide opportunities for our members, which includes exhibition opportunities on an ongoing basis, as well as professional development and educational opportunities. We host about 10 or more exhibitions each year, and that is on an ongoing basis. So we have events regularly. Amy, what determined the photos you selected for this show? This is probably my eighth or ninth time during this exhibit. Uh, It's always a lovely addition to the annual October Atlanta Celebrates Photography Festival. And, you know, you never know what you're going to get when you go into jury a show. And this year I was completely blown away by, first of all, the sheer number of submissions. Photographers from all over the country submitted fantastic work for this show. When thinking about putting a show in the airport, you know, you have to think about your venue and your audience. Airports are emotionally charged. They're visually busy. The people in the airport are are busy. They may have anxiety or anticipation. They may be stressed out. So there's, there's everything kind of happening in this busy space. So I always look for images that are positive, interesting. I do not select images that are about airplanes or flying. It's too literal and, you know, people don't want to think about that. Some people are anxious about flying. So I I look for images that are of high quality, are positive and imaginative, 
and visually arresting enough to stand out in that crowded atrium. Hmm. Were diversity and inclusion part of the criteria for the artists represented in this show? The jury process for me, and this is Amy, was a blind process. So I had no idea who submitted until after the selection process was complete. I will say that the photography represents a very wide, diverse array of individuals, locations, situations, and scenes. So uh, again, you know, not being aware of the diversity of the actual photographers, I can tell you the subject matter is quite diverse. And I must say, from what she picked, I'm looking at the names of the artists picked now, and it is quite a diverse group of photographers, male and female, um, artists of color, young and old, and from across the country, as well as one artist uh, from Paris as well, who's been included in the exhibition. Amy spoke about the nature of subjects that are important to consider for an airport exhibit. From just the few photos I saw, there was a nice range of styles from nature to self-portraits to surrealism. And one of the photographers, Fernet Coy, took a self-portrait and added some fantasy elements to it. How would you describe his photo so much to say? I would say that this photograph is dreamy. It stands in contrast to some of the other pictures in the show. For instance, there's a dramatically lit black and white portrait of a, of a girl with the Day of the Dead kind of face makeup on and she's lit by a candle. And it's an imaginative picture, very powerful. This photograph by Fernet Coy is kind of the exact opposite of that. It's very powerful, but it's digitally manipulated. It's a dreamy photo composition, almost an illustration of an idea rather than an you know, exact realistic depiction of a thing that's happening. Uh, it's a man reading a letter. He's being pierced by arrows. It's very narrative, and that's something that you'll see with a lot of the pictures in this show. They have multiple interpretations, and it ensures everyone will walk away with their own narrative, no matter what their background. With reduced air travel, why did you still want to showcase these photos at the airport? I would say that there, there's still quite a bit of travel going on. It's also, um, like you said, with reduced travel and with some of the COVID restrictions on other locations, this is a wide open public space that people can still go to whether they're traveling or not. It's in the public area at the airport. So people could still go and see the exhibition if they would like to stop by in, in the area. And with the people still traveling, I think there's some anxiety with them of all of the things going on. And as Amy said, the photographs, they're, they're beautiful, they're thought-provoking, they're inspiring, and I think they are good respite through the, you know, through the process of traveling during, during the times we're in right now. And for those who are still cautious about flying or even going out in public, can viewers see these photos online? Oh, absolutely. We have an online exhibition. When the exhibition opens today, the online exhibition will also open at the atlantaphotographygroup.org website, and you will be able to see all of the images online, as well as if anyone wants to visit the airport, they can see them in person. They're absolutely stunning and gorgeous photographic prints. It's really a beautiful exhibition. Are they strictly for exhibition or can they be purchased? 
Oh, all of the images are available for purchase, and that can be done also by contacting us at the Atlanta Photography Group. We're happy to facilitate the purchase of the images, and I know that would be a great support to the artist as well as the Atlanta Photography Group, which is a nonprofit arts organization. The Atlanta Photography Group hosts a myriad of events from discussions to Wednesday meetups, speaking engagements, workshops. How has APG adapted to the virtual realm since the COVID-19 outbreak? Well, thank you for asking. We do have quite a lot of activities going on, and it has been interesting. We were able to pivot early on and move to online events from our educational opportunities to exhibitions, juror talks, artist talks, and our monthly critique sessions, which had previously taken place in the gallery in Atlanta, we moved to online as well, which has actually been one of the silver linings to changing our process because we do have members from across the country And they've now been able to participate in the critiques through the online process because online people can participate from anywhere, including our most recent critique leader who we recruited. Um, He's an instructor at the Rochester Institute of Technology at RIT, and he was able to join us as the critique leader from New York while the rest of us were, I would say, 70% in Atlanta, and other artists joined in from Alabama and Texas, Florida, New York, New Jersey, and just really around the country. So it really has been, in some ways, a benefit. Atlanta Photography Group Executive Director Judith Pishnery and Amy Miller the juror for this exhibition. She is also the executive director of Atlanta Celebrates Photography. The new exhibit, APG to ATL, Airport 2020, opens today in the main atrium at Hartsfield-Jackson International. And you can view the show online as well. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You're listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. In response to the 2015 Baltimore riots, authors Kimberly Jones and Gilly Siegel together wrote the young adult novel, I'm Not Dying With You Tonight. The plot tackles complex race relations at an Atlanta high school. And the story is told from two perspectives, Lena and Campbell, one black girl and one white girl. I spoke with the authors after their book launch in August of 2019. Here's how their collaboration began. We met in a book club for adult readers of young adult novels at Little Shop of Stories, a local institution, bookseller institution. And when the event in Baltimore occurred, this idea for a book came into my head and Kim and I knew each other and we were a little bit friendly and I knew that this was not a story that one of us could tell by ourselves. So I decided I was going to go persuade Kimberly to write with me. And I'm a lawyer by trade. So I, you know, wrote up all my bullet points and I had all my arguments and I was going to go convince (laughs) her. And I went and lurked around Little Shop of Stories while she was on shift to the point where the staff was like, do we need to call someone? (laughs) And uh, Kim said, no, she's fine. I know her. She's fine. (laughs) And then on Kim's break, I said, I started rattling off my bullet points and, and trying to convince her to write with me. And about two sentences in, she said, stop. And I, my heart fell and I thought, oh no. And she said, you had me at let's write together. 
Oh. It's our Jerry Maguire moment. I think it's even better. (laughs) And we don't even need to listen to a country song about it. Um, Why did you feel it was essential to take turns between Lena's and Campbell's narratives? Well, one of the things that we wanted to do to make sh- was to make sure that the characters were very distinctive from each other. And another thing, I was—I used to be the store manager for Little Shop of Stories, and we had an amazing program um, there called Project Bookshelf, where kids who were on free or reduced lunch could come in before any break and get $30 worth of books to take over break with them. Well, when I would try to put books in kids' hands, a lot of times the kids didn't identify with the books that I put in their hand, that they didn't feel like this was their voice that this represented their community and I found myself almost doing like a disservice or betraying them in that I was looking for books that had African-American protagonists and handing that to them saying well this book is amazing and and you know it has someone like you in it and it's like just because we have the same skin tone doesn't mean they're like me or that I relate to them and so I thought about those kids and I wanted to write something in their voice and I wanted them to have a character that made them feel like they were a hero that they could be a hero in their community without code switching without being the bootstraps black girl just as they are they were perfect in their own way and they could be their own hero so as Geely and I talked about how we wanted the voices for these girls to be that was very important to me that Lena stayed authentic to who she was and that she was a representation of her community and she speaks in lingo yeah yes which has a very strong impact in the story and and it's kind of musical Mm -hmm. once once you get into it thinking about 2015 and baltimore from which you felt motivated i don't know if you say drew inspiration i Mm -hmm. guess it is inspiration motivation And thinking about how much has transpired since then, yes, since so that, why is it all the more important to have such stories that resonate with the immediacy of this one? I think we both feel pretty strongly that art is a portal to difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. The way that I entered the some of the conversations that are occurring now about race was through a play and but sometimes it's easier to enter those conversations from a wider lens and then process and zoom in to things that you do say or think or that you hear more immediately in your own community and because the event that inspired us uh, related to teenagers and both of us are mothers and went the news slipped past this so quickly, but this event likely impacted those kids in a really profound way, and we wanted a way to help teens enter the conversation and process what that moment might have been like. Mm. Yeah, we often feel like people talk down to teenagers and that they don't give them the opportunity to express themselves or to process real situations. They're far more capable of having these tougher conversations than we realize or that we give them credit for. So we felt like especially to give to have a book that you could put in the hand of librarian librarians and educators to give them a tool to open up these conversations. Um you know, it's it's very important to us. People consider us an own voices book, and that's super important to us. But it's just as important to us that kids who don't identify with either of the characters, with Lena or Campbell, who will never experience an interaction with a girl like the girls in this book, that they get that book and they, they get an opportunity to read and hopefully allow them to nurture some empathy, which is something that books can be great at. Well, and also, Kim, this goes full circle. I mean, it goes back to when you remarked about the importance of teenagers seeing themselves, going back to the idea that you were in this club for adult readers of young adult fiction. Mm -hmm. Not far into the book, riots break out. A riot breaks out at the McPherson High School football game, and there's not much backstory on the main characters. There's some material Why did you choose to focus on the riots and how these two characters navigate through the riots? 
We often like to say that this book is as much about perspective as it is about race. And it's intentionally set over a very short period of time, about four hours during one night, um, because we wanted to focus on how these two young women would process such a jarring and violent event and whether or not they would be able to work together to survive the night. So it was crucial to us that their story is really about this moment and what's happening in this moment. And the, the lives that they led to date influence how they um, experience these moments, but too much is happening for these girls to be thinking about flashbacks. <laughs> so in part, it's also a matter of pacing and mm-hmm. ensuring that they're keeping really present. Would you talk about how Atlanta informs the story? So one of the fun things that Geely and I did is we chose a neighborhood, um, which is a neighborhood in East Atlanta, infamously known as Zone 6, and we picked a high school in that area, and it has a commercial district not too far away from it. So Geely and I actually took a day and parked our car at the high school, and we walked the route that we thought the girls would walk, and we paid attention to the culture of that neighborhood and where the stores were located and the gas stations. And one of the things that we did is we took that, Geely took that map, and she, I'm I'm still jealous about this. She got to (laughs) hang out with the SWAT team. Yes. Um, so she took that map to the SWAT team, and so SWAT was able to like give us and uh, give her like an explanation on what we had right and wrong in the map, into how we could get the the incident to bubble to the way it did. Um, but because we wanted it to be true to Atlanta, we wanted to make sure that the world building and description that we did was so accurate that we were like, no, we have to like try to live it for a moment for the Atlanta kids to say like. That, that sounds so familiar. I know uh, where that is. That's Highway 20. And <laughs> Gile, uh, just quickly, I don't want to say it's a fun fact, but it is a fascinating <laughs> fact. You were in the Israeli Defense Force, the, yes. idea, the IDF. Yes, it, I is, was. Is Gili short for Gila? Uh, it's, it is a version of Gila, okay, yes. Which yes. means joy. That's right. Did your experience as a fighter have something to do with gaining access to the SWAT team? <laughs> no, actually, for that, I have to credit my parents, <laughs> who work with some law enforcement organizations down in Florida. Um, and they were just incredibly generous with their time and sitting with us. And we worked with both law enforcement and riot survivors from L.A. and from the Philadelphia riots in the 60s. And Ferguson. And Ferguson to understand and sort of do honor those experiences from both sides. In one of the chapters, Lena says that Channel 2 is reporting on the riot and she thinks that's worse than the cops. This was eye-opening. Her father says the nice folks in the suburbs like to stay good and scared of what's happening down in the hood. So that's the story reporters always want to tell. What role do you think the media play reporting riots? I think one of the things, uh, particularly when I talk to the Ferguson uh, survivor, a big thing that they want to highlight is what is happening to, and I'm putting this in quotes world, the good people, the results of what are what is happening to the good people and that the people of the community are the bad people. And so um, one of my favorite people that I talked to was Tori Russell um, down in Ferguson. And part of how Ferguson was calmed was Tori Russell created a thing called Books and Breakfast. And the morning after the riots in Ferguson, he collected children's books from people all over the city of Ferguson. And he threw a huge breakfast for the kids of Ferguson and gave them all free books and um, and served everybody breakfast to get everybody to calm down. Well, no one's ever really told the story of Tori Russell calming, and Tori Russell has become kind of a car- of target in Ferguson as someone who's a troublemaker. Wait, and- why? just because he's very vocal about how he feels about what happened down there. Um, And he's become quite a, he was about 19 when Ferguson happened, and he's been a strong activist um, ever since then. And he's one of the riot survivors that we spoke with. And that was one of the things that he kept emphasizing to me is that the community came together in such a beautiful way after this happened and people were helping to clean up shops that they were familiar with and doing things like books and breakfast and all of that. And he said, by the time all of that started happening, which 
wasn't long after the incident, the news had gone. There was no interesting sensationalized story of violence and crime and fire. And, and it was much easier to criminalize that community than to ask the why, which is one of the things that we hope we're doing with I'm Not Dying You Didn't Watch Tonight, is that even when you have moments like that going all the way back to the riots of the 60s, the question that no one ever asks is why. Why are the people burning down these houses? Why are these people so enraged? But when you leave people so powerless for so long and they don't have any way to get answers, they will find a way to take their power back. Yeah. And we have to ask them why. How beautiful to start with books for children. And again, I can see why this resonated with you. Kim is wearing a bright yellow T-shirt that says Property of Little Shop, which I gather is the Little Shop of Stories yes. in Decatur and not the Little Shop of Horror. No, no, no. No Seymour. No, no. <laughs> no Seymour. No oh, there's one more eerie incident in the book, a big silver gray SUV driven by a white man swerves into a crowd running over a woman bystander. And the Charlottesville protest, the killing of Heather Heyer came to mind. Was that the reference? We actually wrote this before that happened. Yes. So we wrote that and then that incident happened and we called each other immediately and we were both just like, are you are you watching the news? Yes. Are you watching the news? And so we, we debated whether or not we would take it out. But we thought it would be better to honor her with the truth yes. of these moments. Those That moment is, is real, unfortunately, as we learned by watching the news possibly months later. Mm -hmm. um, and shying away from the painful reality of the tension doesn't do anybody any good. So in addition to the alternating narratives, um, what's the takeaway about the girl's relationship with each other? What happens? We love that question. <laughs> <laughs> I think hopefully over the course of the novel, the girls learned some important things about each other that they have in common. Um, and and learn to see the world a little bit from one another's eyes, whether they end up friends or whether they even survive the night. I'm going to leave to readers to decide. Yeah, and one of the things that we always point out is that it's very important to understand the significance of it being two girls taking this journey. Yes, had either one of these girls been male or male presenting, the story is a different story. Um, and that's the thing that unifies them is that they're both girls. And that in this moment being girls, the threat to them is a lot different than if two boys took this journey or if a boy and a girl took this journey. So we hope that people you know, take away from this that like finding the commonality sometimes it just helps you to get through life easier to find the commonality with people. Yeah, it's about survival. Geely Siegel and Kimberly Jones co-wrote the young adult novel I'm Not Dying With You Tonight. The book was nominated for this year's NAACP Image Awards in the category of youth and teens. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 with Chef Todd Ginsburg on special food for the Jewish New Year. And we'll hear about the latest offerings from Atlanta's Museum of Design, MODA. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. He produced the piece about the Atlanta History Center exhibition. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.